Lewis Hamilton, a four-time Formula One champ and one of the most popular athletes in the world. I, I feel kind of proud that we perhaps were a part of helping break that mold, you know, knocking that ball down. We travel to London, where F1's first and only black driver is a household name. To learn how the UK native went from a humble start to a rock star persona and Hamilton's four titles, including three in four years, have made him one of the sport's best ever. That's been a great step in, in really finding um, just how good I am. The global icon has kept people guessing throughout his career, from a surprising decision to switch teams to cutting professional ties with his father. It's very hard for a parent to let go. All that's coming up next right here on the In-Depth with Graham Bensinger podcast. So I actually wanted to start off by talking to you about fashion, obviously something that's really important to you. How would you describe your style? Uh, I get asked that a lot. Um, I, generally, I generally have a kind of more of a relaxed style, I would say. I, I'm more kind of urban, urban underground kind of street wear I like to wear. Um, maybe you know, chic. Um, I love naturally. I love wearing a suit. You know how good putting a suit is. You know it's like you feel so fresh once you got your nice watch on. Got the bits to kind of show it off. Is there's nothing quite like wearing a, a crisp suit. But um, yeah, I like to wear jeans, and that's why exactly here. I had a lot of different looks to, I could, for example, wear today. But I love denim, and um, and I generally just wanted to be feel comfortable. And I don't, you know, so I look, take a lot of, I buy a lot of magazines and I'm looking at a lot of different images of photo shoot, uh, sorry, um, uh, runway shows and, and kind of getting kind of inspiration from all those different things and then pull stuff together myself. How's uh, it evolved over the years? Hugely. Um, you know, it's a completely different world to Because this you, you look at pictures of yourself when you first get oh into God. Formula One compared to now. I mean, yeah. fashion's Even changed Even before a lot. I got to Formula One, you know. But naturally, you know, we, I started racing when I was eight. All the family's money went on racing. You know, like if I ever wanted to get a new piece of clothing, uh, you know, I had to wash a lot of cars <laughs> over, over several months before I could even get a new jacket, you know, because every single penny that we had went to racing. So um, I wouldn't particularly say I had, uh, I mean, to be honest, when I was younger, I was just in Jordan gear all the time because I was always playing basketball uh, for, the, for, the, for the school and in the streets. And, um, but yeah, it's, it's just evolved a huge amount. I think when I was at my first team, I was very much, I, very much led to believe by my dad and people around me that I, you know, I had to, con I had to kind of fit in in a, in, a, in a box which everyone does. It's the only way you can get into Formula 1 is if you fit, your shape fits the box, you know what I mean? It's not like you can be your own person and you have your own character, you have your own style, you have to be the same as everyone else. And that's what, I, so when I got into sport, that's kind of that's how I was molded to be. But that, I never felt comfortable. I never felt like I was in my own skin, you know? So it's really over the last probably five, six years that I've really been able to come out my shell and you know, naturally I got my roots in the sport, kind of they can't really get rid of me. So then I can say what I want and do what I want. And, and so over the last years, I've just become to found my own style, feel more comfortable being me. And that's what you see today. One of the things that impresses me most about you, aside from coming from nothing to all the success and breaking racial barriers and becoming a you know, three-time world champion is that you're obviously on top now, 
and you're maintaining your level of excellence all the while jet setting mm -hmm. around the globe, singing in nightclubs, hobnobbing with celebrities, <laughs> figuring out the next chapter of your life, whether that be fashion or music. How have you been able to find the balance? Oh, well, it's taken a long, a long time. I've been racing for 23 years, so it's a long, long time. Um, and I, I guess really, I think it's just getting that inner peace, really finding that equilibrium, you know, that works for you energy-wise and balance with your training and your work and your social life and all that kind of stuff. When I got to Formula One, you know, from eight to 25, I had very little social life, you know? It was literally racing, 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 get to bed early, you know, I would avoid parties, I would avoid, uh, I, you know, friends wanted to go and do something. Very rarely I'll do things, be, uh, you know, evening things, because I was like, I've got to get up and train. And it's kind of, you can be too, uh, you can go too far sometimes. And I think it's really pulling it back a little bit, uh, just enough that you can also, and then building a social life, you know, building, having time with my family, having time with my friends, that has really helped me raise my game because if you can be happy outside the car and when you get to the, and, in, and in the car, you can be twice the driver. Take me through all the places you'll be over the next month. Um, well, I haven't been home for a month. So I went to the Barcelona testing and I came back to the UK. I went home for literally a day then I flew out to Australia. In, in homes, Monaco? Monaco. Okay. Yeah. And then flew out to Australia. I was in Australia for a week and a half. Then I went to, to um, well, it's actually New Zealand to Australia to Hong Kong, Hong Kong to Bahrain, Bahrain to here, and I'm here for three days, and then I go to New York for two days, and then I go to uh, Beijing, then I go to, for two days, and then I go to Shanghai for f uh, four or five days, and then I go to Berlin, then I go to UK, <laughs> then I go to LA, and then I, and then I go uh, to Russia. <laughs> so I'm, at some stage I'll, get, I'll go home. How do you stay well-rested? Honestly, I don't know. I have my friends around me, are, they don't understand where I get the energy from. Um, because I don't sleep a lot. I, I like... What do you, how much do you usually sleep? Five hours. Mm -hmm. And, you know, especially when, I, and when I'm training twice a day, often like today I won't train twice a day, I train this evening, because I literally just landed from Bahrain at 7 a.m. this morning, okay. drove straight here and um, got a lot of stuff to do at the factory today. But um, yeah, I don't know. I just sleep when I can, and but I just I can't sleep long. So if I go to bed at ten o'clock, <laughs> wake up, I literally wake up at like four or five a.m. and I'll be in and out of sleep from then on. So what I do is I go to bed late, so I don't miss anything in my day. Mm -hmm. So I generally get to bed at like twelve, one, and then I wake up early and I can't do anything but go and work out. So it actually works really well. I want to go back to your schedule uh, mo momentarily. Who, who, I mean, just because it is global and ongoing, who plans it and how do you manage it? Uh, I plan it and my assistant manages it. <laughs> uh, I don't have a manager. I've fired all my managers. <laughs> um, so I, I manage myself. Um, I, go, I have um, my assistant. One of my, I have two assistants and one assistant, she's been with me for 10 years, so since I've been in Form 1. She's incredible. And then I've got a, just got a new assistant like a year or so ago and she's fantastic and she travels around with me. So um, those are my core core team. And I just sit with them and I say this, 
this, you know, slot this, slot this in. And also what I decided to do was rather than sign for a management company that has 10, 20, 30, 40, 100 acts, whatever, and get part, get them part-time working for you, right. I was like, I'm gonna take a bit of time and set my own little core team up that I hire and they're focused on helping me build what I wanna build, because I'm gonna get there twice as fast, otherwise gonna, it's gonna take twice, if not three times as long with these other people who are focused on other people, you know what I mean? And, um, and I sit with them and I get a list of all the different activities that are going on around the world and I select which ones I want to go to. And so, and I just make it work, you know? And I, I love that the fact that also with my job and at my age, I get to travel around, get to see these different cities, see different cultures, um, meet new people and, and just, just enjoy it along the way, you know? Don't get too serious about anything. Even though the weekend we, you know, we had a race, and naturally, when you're on the weekend, you're serious. But I don't get like drawn down by the result, whether it's good or bad. When you won your first championship, you said you didn't enjoy it that much. Yeah. Why not? I didn't enjoy it at all. Um, How I come? Think, I think, uh, well, it was kind of a, getting to Form 1 was an incredible achievement for, for our family, you know. It was so hard along the way. My dad had four jobs to even get me go-karting and we were racing against all these rich kids and to have walked away in a, honestly, we had a real crap car, road car and crap trailer and all these people had the flashy stuff and we'd arrive and we'd knock them dead. And that was such a satisfying thing. And, um, and then, we got to, then we got to Formula One and the the pressure was so intense. You know, the pressure, most of the pressure comes from myself to want to succeed. But when you first get to Formula One, the, the pressure to impress, the pressure to, to deliver above and beyond what your ex people's expectations are. So I remember my first year, my boss was like, don't be surprised, you know, you're gonna be about half a second off the, you know, your teammate, he's, he's a two-time world champion, but don't worry about it, you know. And I was like, no way. <laughs> that like, that just kind of, uh, maybe he actually said it to fire me up, I don't know, but, and then, you know, I beat, I nearly beat him in the first race, I beat him in the second race, uh, third race, sorry. And, uh, and that year I lost the world championship, which was really, you know, in the face of, in front of Barely. so many, yeah, in the front of so many people, um, managing embarrassment, managing your emotions was, was really difficult. And the next year, bounce back and... Why, why embarrassed though? I mean, here you are your first year, you basically, um, you, you know, well, you barely miss out on winning the championship. Well, yeah, I understand. But, but I don't know, I mean, it's, it's when you're in front of cameras, the emotions, you know, I'm a very emotional personal, uh, person, so you're in, put in front of cameras all the time, the highs and the lows, I'm just meaning that, not particularly embarrassment, but that experience was, kind of a bit traumatizing in my first year at such a young age. And I wasn't prepared for media. I didn't have media lessons, how to speak to cameras, how to speak to people. I just arrived and I was thrown in the deep end without any lessons, you know, and I just handled it the best way I could. And I won the championship the next year, but um, again, really tra traumatizing because I lost it for a second. And then the last corner, I got the championship. And also, you know, I had a lot of penalties given me, to me in those two years through no fault of my own and, and uh, just through some strange things that were going on in the business and almost like anything to stop me from, from succeeding. So when I finally succeeded, it was a great feeling, but 
we just rolled on to the next year and and I think I think just also as a as a as I was at 23 I guess I just wasn't mature enough to to grasp everything that was going on and to go and enjoy it I read about a race early on in your Formula One career in Fiji where I think something, you know, just a bad race. And the, the article read that after the race, you basically stayed in your hotel for yeah. three days straight. Yeah. How much would you used to beat yourself up when things wouldn't An go well? An insane amount, which was, which it was unhealthy. Um, like what would you be doing in the hotel for the three days? Uh, I literally, I mean, I remember after that race, I mean, I would just have like the biggest headache and just, just like you're under the biggest dark cloud. And I was in my hotel room for three days. I didn't leave my hotel. I didn't eat, hardly ate. I, um, I just stayed in silence. <laughs> and I guess just trying to wiggle my way out of this negative headspace. Anyways, I came back and won the next race. So, I'm, but what it, the, the point is, I think in life, is, and, and I'm sure many people do it, you know, where you, you hold on to things, you dwell on things. Mm -hmm. And at the point, at the time in my life, I was just so stubborn and so set in my ways that I couldn't get past things. So sometimes it would take days, weeks to get past failure. Cause it just, cause you know what it is? You train so hard, you, you've done it a million times, you know, that corner, and then you make a mistake or something like that. You know, you've done your due diligence time and time and time again, and then you still make mistake, that mistake. So it's just not being able to forgive yourself. So I think um, matured a huge amount. So that it takes me no time at all to get past things and that's been a huge a huge um, release and it's helped me raise my level again by quite some way I think. How competitive are you? I'm as competitive as anyone I know. I think I'm, I, I like to think that I'm the most competitive person I know um, in everything I do but I think I'm, it's different to when I was younger. When I was younger there's, there's no losing, uh, you know, I would never think that losing was acceptable or, or, but I am now being older, I understand that losing is actually a part of it. Losing is actually what's helped me be the driver I am today. Those lows make the highs even higher. Those, those difficulties that you go through, the character building process, process are necessities. And so I actually really enjoy the times that I don't, that don't succeed because I feel like I grow. You really enjoyed in the moment? Or uh, looking no, back? afterwards. Okay. You know, I love. For example, the weekend I came third, and at the time, I was fairly chilled about it. Next day, you feel, you feel that churn in your in your in your gut, and you go and train, and you use that energy, and you grow, and you figure out ways. Like for example, today we're going to sit down and figure out how we fix that, and also how you handle it in that low moment is what just what what um, what is most important. You know, winning is easy. You get to, you know, you succeed and enjoying that moment is great. You don't really learn a huge amount from that, but as I said, it's that those low points that you do. So how after as I came out the race and how I connect, connected with my engineers who all feel the pain that I'm feeling, I could just be down and bring everyone else down. It was how instead lift them up, you know, let them know that don't worry, we're gonna work through this. There were these great things that happened this weekend. There's so many positives. So let's not, let's just dis discard the, uh, the negative and just try and work to make sure that doesn't happen again, you know? And so these guys are in here today working flat out to make sure we win the next race. What do you think about when racing? Uh, just think about winning. Just think about winning? Yeah, I think about winning. Um, 
uh, you know. I mean, you ever daydream? Not when you're racing, no. Not when you're practicing sometimes okay. uh, in winter testing because it gets kind of boring. <laughs> like you could be thinking about I'm thinking anything. about, yeah, you could be thinking about food. You could be thinking about the next time you're going to go and party, the next movie you're going to go and see. And while you're driving around the track at a yeah, couple well, hundred miles practice, an hour? It, it, yeah, because like down the straight, because it, it gets kind of, you're like on autopilot in practice, in testing. But on the race weekend, no, because every bit of feedback you get, every bump, every sign, uh, breaking point, all these different things, you've got to collect all that information to then translate to your team so to get to decide where you're going to take the car balance. So you can't, there's no time for that. Kind of. What will you see during a race when you're driving a couple hundred miles an hour? Surprisingly, you see everything. It's interesting you say that too, because we taped an episode with Mario Andretti, and I, I remember him saying, it, you know, somebody had a red shirt in mm -hmm. the, the crowd, he could pick out a, a specific person. I mean, can you? Uh, I don't look at the people. Okay. I, you know, naturally, it's like, you, it's like your vision, uh, for some reason, like when you get into a car, it's like you go into hyperdrive, and all of a sudden, your vision opens, and you see so much. Like, I can see the dude over here walking, and, and all, you know, let's see what he's wearing, but I won't be, but when I'm on, so when I'm on the track, I have to be able to choose which parts I want to take and store and use. So breaking points, bumps, skid marks, uh, different tones of grass, different color of the, of the, of the white stripe, the white line, the, the, um, the signposts, the fence color, all these kind of things you point out and things that you use for references of braking, speed uh, to judge your distance between braking and, and the corner. So I, the, the, the crowd is not something I look at. What I was unaware of was, uh, I mean, how sore the driving will make your neck mm -hmm. at times. What have you done over the years to strengthen your neck with the, the weight and the helmet and all of that? Yeah, uh, yeah basically, uh, you know, most people I meet, particularly people that don't get to watch Formula 1 or who have just begun watching Formula 1 or even like, particularly in the States, when I go and meet people and they're like, I didn't know that, that I'll be talking to them and I'll say, yeah, I lose. I can lose nine, ten pounds in the race. And they're like, what? No way. I, I was like, I just thought you just sat there and just drove. Like, you can lose nine or ten pounds in a race? Yeah, like sometimes I lose. Like, Malaysia, I always lose around ten pounds in that race in an hour 45. How, how hot is it? I mean, uh, I don't know. It's bloody roasting there. Okay. It's, uh, it, and it's humid, like 100% humidity. There's no air, cool air coming in. So you, you're on thermal underwear, suit, gloves balaclava helmet and it's just like working out in the sauna for an hour and a half and um, it's crazy it's, so there's like probably three three races that is it's uh, four uh, ten pounds nine eight pounds and then the other races are generally like five pounds you lose through the race but um, it's the physical g-force that you pull through through all the corners so you're pulling a multiple of your body weight and to be able to hold your body up whilst you're having those forces pull on your legs and your core and then afterwards, you have all these pains in your body and your muscles, tense, uh, tightness, and all those kind of things. So you have to have a lot of physio. So that's what you have to work on. And, and the neck, when I first got to Formula One, geez, I did three days of driving and I couldn't hold my head up after the half, halfway through the first day. <laughs> um, and so what you do is you get, I had a helmet and I put uh, 22 pounds on top and you lay, lay off a, a table or a bench and you do multiple reps just to build your neck up. So my neck grew like an inch and a half when I first got to Formula One. 
and then since then, you know, at the end of the season, you only have two months off, it kind of shrinks, and then, you, then the next time it comes up. And so you're just conditioning, strength and conditioning. You once said, when I first got to the sport, I was like, I've got to do everything I'm told, and now I don't do a lot of what I'm told. I think you were uh, poolside in Thailand, you, you yeah. said, when contemplating the, the switch, and that was when you ultimately decided to make the move from McLaren to Mercedes. Yeah. What was it? poolside that you thought about that made you decide to finally make the jump? I, I kind of related to living at home, you know, when you first move out and get your own apartment and you take on those responsibilities on your own, that first step of independence. And I was in a team where I was very much part of the family, you know, they were protecting me in all sorts of ways and also controlling in a lot of ways. And to make a decision myself, no one influenced my decision to move. Uh, so I did all my due diligence myself and then came to the conclusion that this was a move for me. Whilst everyone, everyone said it was the worst thing that could die, worst decision, I've ruined my career, blah, blah, blah. And now we've won two world championships. But um, so it's, it's quite satisfying in that respect. What I had to do is really, I made notes, the pros and cons of, of my options that I had. And there were good bits and bad bits about either way, you know. Staying at McLaren, I thought that, you know, geez, I'm gonna, the car that I've helped build and grow to where we are now, most you, likely. You've been there since you were a teenager. Yeah, and we'd finally, we just missed out in 2012 World Championship. And with an improved reliability, maybe we'd had a chance of winning the championship in 2013. So I was like, I'd, I could sacrifice that. I don't wanna sacrifice the short term for the long term goal. and. That's coming to this team, for example, that was like fifth best at the time and helped them grow to being the best. And, um, but when I was sitting looking, I was in Thailand and I was on the, by the pool and it was the heat at the moment. I had to make the decision because, you know, the slots available, McLaren was pushing me, Mercedes was pushing me for an answer. And I remember just sitting there and for some reason I just came to a really peaceful moment. I was looking over the sea, the sun, sun was setting, there was these really beautiful like little islands in the distance and it just came to me I was like yeah I'm gonna do it and there was no nervousness about it there was no uh, I'm in an iron it would just became clear and so I made the decision called up the bosses and I had to tell them which was the hardest thing to do what did you say oh it was it was horrible you know because the as I said I was signed when I was 13 so I'd known Martin and Ron since I was 13 to have to call them and say I'm leaving was was difficult especially when you could hear their voice and because naturally it's painful for them to hear that you know someone they've been with for so long helped nurtured helped get to Formula One it's almost for sure a feeling of betrayal but I think they understood that what I needed to do for me as a man and um, I think they respected that. How did you explain it? Uh, I can't remember, to be honest. Yeah. I, you know, I just would have said, you know, that firstly I started out just saying this has been an incredible journey. Firstly, I want you to know how how grateful I am for everything you've done to help me get be where I am today. And um, I think, honestly, for me, the next step in my life is to take this next step of independence, to go to a team, to challenge, to take everything I've learned from you guys and, and in this experience, to take it to a new team. and see if I can drive another car, see if I can turn another, world, another car into a world championship winning car with a team. And I think they, underst 
you know, naturally, I think at the beginning, they perhaps didn't fully understand it, but I think, um, I think afterwards, and then now, for example, when I speak to them, I think they understand. And to, to come here with no one knowing you, you have to put your skills to the test. You, have, you know, you have to build new relationships. Um, you have to be able to extract the most from a new car, from a new engineers and all that kind of stuff. That's been a great step in, in really finding um, just how good I am, just not going out and driving a car. It's the stuff outside, which is really, I think, which really kind of molds and shapes a world champion. Growing up, I think one of your uh, first European races, you're in Italy and competing among other people against your current Formula One teammate, uh, Nico Rosberg. And after the race, his dad, who's Formula One champion, comes up and congratulates you on winning the race. Um, how close did you and Nico become after that? I mean, I started racing against Nico in 1996, 97. And. You know, he was the golden child when I moved to Italy to race. I was this unknown kid and Nico was the golden child there because, you know, naturally being a Formula One world champion's son, the spot, he was in the spotlight, everyone was focused on him and he had the best of everything with the, with the top team. And, to come, and then come along and I beat him in my first race, which was, which was amazing. And our relationship started from there. And um, then we were teammates a few years later on, which we traveled everywhere together. Like, uh, you know, we didn't really take flights traveling around Italy, obviously. So we were always in the car. So many jokes, movies, fun things that we, we did along the way. And um, yeah, and then when we got obviously older, when we moved into cars, he went to Formula BMWs in like Europe or in Germany. And I went to UK to do British Formula, Formula Renault. And then we didn't speak for probably couple years and then came back into uh, eventually got to Formula One. So. What's kind of unique and uh, unusual about Formula One is your teammate is also, not your in teammate. this case, <laughs> right, not your teammate or your greatest rival and one of the guys you're trying to beat each week. So how strange is that dynamic? Um, and maybe yeah, less strange because you're in it, but from... No, from the outside, it's it's contradictory to, to really what because obviously so we have the two championships within the one kind of championship battle and, and one's the driver's championship and the other's the team constructors championship the team only the team mostly cares about the constructors championship because that's what sells cars that so that's really where we both come in as as teammates we've both got to score points you know you can't have one guy finishing first and one guy finishing tenth you both need to score, particularly when you're up against a Ferrari who are banking points as well. So that's our, fun, our, our core job. And then individually, we want to be the first. We want to be the one that's ahead. And you're always based off your teammate because um, they're in the same equipment as you. So it actually works out really well. And having that intense battle inside the team is, it has to be really carefully managed by the upper, you know, by the management. But they do a great job in this team. So. Uh, you know, and as me and Nico get older and older, we get used to each other's ways, and um, you know we've had our up, lots of ups and downs, but you know really maturing a lot in in, in how we negotiate that uh, that that battle. Is it possible or even healthy to be as close to friends as you guys might have been back in the younger days? Well, it's not possible because I don't think it's possible. I mean, we 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 have complete different lives. We do different things. Nico's 
married with a kid and, and grew up in a lot different area than, than I did. And, um, and you know, he's, he's a lot different than he was when we were, you know, back that then. But then the reason we got on so well is because I was crazy and he happened to do some of the crazy things that I did too. So we kind of got on along well. And now he doesn't do any of those crazy things that I do and I still do all those crazy things. So naturally we've gone different uh, ways with different dynamics. But, um, you know, we've got our core, our core group of friends each. And, and with the intensity of a battle like we are having, it's impossible to have that relation. You can't be friends. Yeah, yeah, win the world championship, no problem, buddy. <laughs> That's not how it right. goes. You know, like, you know, what's gonna that winning the championship? That's all that matters. Uh, your dad said to you when you were a young boy, growing up, if you work hard in school, he'll support your racing career. And what's unique about your situation growing up is you guys didn't have a lot of money. And Formula One's a sport where nepotism's common. You know, you generally have to have a lot of money to have success, and you, your situation was anything but that. What do you remember from him holding three jobs growing up, trying to make ends meet? Uh, I just remember my dad not really getting a lot of sleep. I remember him, I remember going on errands with him where he'd go and put, you know, I'd be sitting in, <laughs> in the back seat of the car with this, this big solid bit of wood with the for sale signs for houses. And because he got paid per sign, right? Yeah, it was like 15 pounds or 10 pounds or something like that, you know. So we'd go around and go and drive to all these houses overnight and, and be putting up for sale signs and vendor machine. The dude just doing whatever he could to, to make a little bit of money to be able to. And then, you know, once he'd finished that, once he finished his day job, then doing that, then he'd be in the garage all night, cleaning, preparing my car, my go-kart, you know getting it all ready for, for the next race. It was, it was beautiful to see, you know, and there was a, some of the greatest moments was sitting, sitting in the garage and just watching him work, you know, and, and at some point, you know, him let me be a part of it. And then that journey we took when we get to the racetrack where we were the, where we were the kind of uninvited guests and not particularly always welcomed and, um, we just, you know, me and him just kept our head down and we'd be in the back of our little uh, box trailer with a, a little gas heater and a cup of noodle soup <laughs> and um, some bacon sandwiches because my stepmom was really good at making those for us. And, you know, and, and our, we just looked like, we kind of looked a bit like peasants, but we <laughs> got out there and I thrashed this old crappy cart round and we beat people. And, um, you know, we would leave feeling you know, uh, feeling just full of energy, full of uh, great achievement. And that was really what it was about. It wasn't about, hey, we want to be world champions. We want to be Formula One world champions. That's, what, that's not what we got into it for. We got into it because it was something for me, my dad to do with me and vice versa. And um, a way in which we could bond. I was watching an interview your friend Beyonce did not too long ago with Oprah and Beyonce who was famously managed by her, her father for a long time was telling Oprah about how, you know, she knew for a while she was ready to cut professional ties yeah. with her father, but it took a long time from when she first realized that to, to building up it. the courage to actually doing it. Yeah. How similar was it for exactly you? Exactly the same. Yeah. Um, I mean, 
it, it is very, very tough and, and you build that relationship with that person. They, they, they work from the ground up. They, they create something from nothing. And it's very hard for a parent to let go. It's so hard for the parent to let go and just, and, and realize that they've succeeded. And then, you know, now it's time to let them fly and then, you know, they've got the wings. It's time to let them fly on their own. I think that was, but to be able to get to that point and tell your parent that, and there's no really right way of doing it, you know? How do you do it? You're gonna, either way, you're gonna get, it's gonna be an upset experience. It's gonna be emotional one way or another. It's, it's, if it's not done right, it's, um, it could be so detrimental to that relationship. And so I think probably for Beyonce and, and whoever, other, other sportsmen have had those kind of relationships, that step, not wanting to break that person's heart because they've helped you get to where you are and have the wonderful life that you now have, to be able to tell them that, uh, you know, I really want to start making decisions for myself. I will need to learn, make my own mistakes and learn from those kind of things. That's like the hardest thing to do, to do. I think it just got too intense at one point and I was like, I just want, I, I just want to be, I, I want to go for a beer with you. I don't want to have to talk about business. I don't want to talk about business ever anymore. You know, I want it to be lighthearted. I don't want us to have a joke. I want us to party. I want us to get to a point where it's just a great father-son relationship. Because when it's business involved, it's stressful. When you've got to sign documents, when you've got to make decisions about money and all these kind of things, that, that's just... Uh, what was involved with getting from the point of, you know, cutting the professional ties to where you actually wanted the relationship to get to? Uh, well, I'm still working on getting the relationship to okay. <laughs> where I wanted to get to, so it's taken a long time. And um, I guess really just getting on with it. And I mean, you gotta make the decision, you gotta go with it and try to then pick up the pieces afterwards. And you know, you, don't, you never know how long that's gonna take, but I, I definitely am really happy where I am today. I'm, I'm more proud of the decisions that I've made to be where I am today and and naturally I owe I owe who I am today and, and what I've achieved today to to my family and the fact is they instilled good values in me and and uh, and helped me the decisions I make today are based on all these experiences I saw my dad do you know and I use that wise mental head that he helped put on my shoulders to to um to, to, to be here today and have those championships. Your younger brother, uh, Nico, born uh, two months premature. I think he wasn't breathing when he came out. Doctors told your parents he would never be able to walk. Um, what do you remember from finding out he had cerebral palsy? Well, I was seven, so I mean, I didn't really understand that uh, at the time. Um, and when my brother was born, it was just, uh, it was one of the greatest experiences for me, you know, having a young, young little, he just looked like a sack of spuds. <laughs> you know, just little fat thing. <laughs> he was so chubby. Right. And he would just sit there and just never move. <laughs> um, and it was just, you know, I, I loved growing up with him. And then, you know, when he was starting to get older, starting to do things with him, you know, having, a, having someone, to, someone you love to play with. And, and uh, naturally he was into, he would be all, all my races from a, from a young kid because we would drag him around with us. And, um, and you know, now he's a, he's a great young man. He's 24, he's, he's raced cars, naturally because he wants to be a racing driver because I'm a racing driver. 
been around cars his whole life. And um, I mean, that's what's cool about it too. I mean, he's similarly defied all odds. Absolutely, yeah. I think that's really, I think because, um, yeah, he was told he wouldn't walk, he was told that he wouldn't be able to play drums, he was told he wouldn't be able to drive, all these different things. And I think he loves defying what people say you can't do. And I, that's exactly how I am really. So he probably, we share that same thing in common. And, and but, not to mention, I was looking at his Instagram yesterday. He's very open too about his experiences and how mm. um, you know it impacts his life. Yeah, definitely. You know, like for that. me watching my brother, you know, everything was physically, everything was easy for me as a kid as it is for us, you know, walking around, right. playing football, playing basketball, doing whatever activity you want, fall over, get back up, all these different things. And, and, and for me, growing up watching this young kid with this difficulty, it was kind of hard to grasp. You can't imagine how hard it is for him, but I, I did understand because I was with him all the time. So I'd see the, the tears, I'd see the, the way people look at him, I'd see uh, the way other kids would look at him and, and treat him. And, and for me, being the older brother, just wanted to to show him, you know, never give up. And, and then he inspired me as a young kid, just seeing him fall over when we're playing football, and it's easy for me to run around him with the ball. But like, when we'd be playing basketball, I'd get in the wheelchair and battle with him, you know, and, and um, but he never wants, he never wanted to, it to be an issue. So he just always falls over, gets back up, and doesn't even, doesn't even worry about it, just gets up and, and pushes along. So, you know, he's inspired so many, um, so many people not only with a disability, but also without disabilities today. And um, just showing that anything is possible, you, you know, work hard for something and you can get there. And I think it was on your website, you revealed that when you first came into Formula One, you were a little uncomfortable about race and you, you know, you kind of wanted to downplay the fact that you were the first black Formula One driver, whereas now you've really embraced, embraced it. it. Explain that change of mindset. I don't know, I think, well, you know, now when I arrive at the race, I don't think, oh, hey, we're the only black people here. That's, right. You know, I never right. ever did that. Like, um, but I think just I get, getting older and understanding what it actually, uh, that it actually is actually something and, um, and embracing that and using that is actually a real positive. I love that I turn up and I'm different to everyone else. All the other drivers stick out like a sore thumb compared to the other drivers in some ways. And I like that. And um, and, and, real, and seeing it as an advantage rather than a disadvantage. You know, and then I think as a kid, with difficulties that you face, whether it be racism, whether it be those hard times, I laugh upon it now, you know. I, I don't know if you've seen Cool Runnings, like my sure. favorite movie. Right. I love when they arrive the first time on the top of the hill and they pull out their crappy sled, which is exactly the same as me and my dad arriving at the track. Everyone else has got their professional equipment and me and my dad turn up with our crap car and our crap go-kart. <laughs> and in these scruffy clothes. And it's like everyone stops. Like, and that's how it is in Cool Runnings. Every, the whole paddock stopped to see like, what they're doing here. And then they went and knocked, knocked everyone dead, and that's what we did. How much do you think your dad struggled early on when he was talking to potential sponsors because of race? Um, I mean, obviously I wasn't there, mm -hmm. but um, I, if I imagine it. And I imagine my dad going into these, to these meetings and, and saying, how would you like to support the first black for one driver and they'll be like yeah right you know and we didn't get a lot of support but um those who did i'm very very grateful to you know people support sponsored us with free tires fuel 
those different things, and which made a huge impact for us because we didn't have any money. My dad spent his life savings, him and my stepmom's life saving in the first year. And then some. Yeah, and remortgaged the house, God knows how many times to, or the apartment so many times to, to, uh, to, to, to get us to the race weekends. And so, um, but I can't, I can only, uh, it's difficult to imagine because he would have protected me from the difficulties that he was facing because, you know, he wouldn't want me to see those things. But I can only imagine how hard it was for him. And I'm, I am told by my stepmom and, and uh, my mom of just how difficult times sometimes he was faced with. And, uh, and that's what makes me even more proud of him. Tell about the moment not too long ago, you're in New York City, an African-American woman comes up to you yeah. and shows you a picture of her nine-year-old son. Uh, yeah, that was in, um, I was at the Met, the, sorry, the, Af, uh, the Amphar Gala. Um, and yeah, this is, uh, I think she's a, this black supermodel, I think she was a model, came rushing over to me and, and um, she's like, oh my God, my son wants to, my son's racing cars and he wants to be you and, you know, can you follow him? So I followed him on Instagram and it was kind of cool because, you know, growing up from eight to, from eight to, actually to even now, <laughs> I've never raced against, i never ever seen another, um, uh, another black family racing um, is where you know and Why even in all the is? series you know in all the different classes there was never another black family on the race weekend so to to now see that young that, that, that you know Asian kids black kids you know different ethnicities are now coming in I, I feel kind of proud that we perhaps were a part of helping break that mold you know knocking that wall down and and now other other people from different walks of life are kind of getting into the sport, so it's, um, it's not as big as what Tiger did or the Williams sisters did, but hopefully in our own little way, it was, it's But, uh, but why isn't it? I don't know, I'm, I'm just saying, you know, right. maybe it is, maybe it isn't, right. but, um, you know, I think it's kind of cool that hopefully we were part of helping break that mold, and so I was very, very proud when she came over, and I was like, I can't believe it, you know, it's, see the picture of this little kid who looks just like how I looked with the you know little helmet, which is sitting on the back of the top seat because it's so small, can't barely see over the steering wheel, and one day wanted to be here doing what I do. Yeah, I'm sure you figured you'd get out of here without having to tell this story. But the Autosports Awards dinner mm -hmm. as a kid, and running into the then McLaren head. Yeah, well that was crazy because so when you win when you win a championship. Um, it's kind of like our music awards, but in a much smaller scale and not as cool. Um, it's actually not really fun, <laughs> but I was, um, I was 10. We didn't have money for a suit. I borrowed it from, we borrowed it from a family who the kid had gotten the previous year. So I had this green velvet suit that I borrowed from this kid. And um, yeah, my, ba my dad put, to, put together this little booklet uh, with a space for an autograph phone number, address, name, all that kind of stuff. And we went round to, um, I, I went round, I didn't actually know, I knew of people, but I didn't know who was who by looking at their face. She's like, oh, that's so-and-so, that's so-and-so. So I'd go over and I'd say, hey, can I have your autograph? <laughs> and, um, and at that time he said, that's Ron Dennis, who owns the uh, McLaren and he builds Ayrton's car. And um, I, for me, bing, that's, because He's that was my your favorite hero. driver. Right. Yeah. So I was like, I want to go and see him. So I went up to him and I was like, yeah, I'm 
one day I just won the British Championship and one day I want to be in Formula in your car and be world champion for you. Three years later he signed me and then ten years later I won the world championship for him so kind of a cool story. And I still have that page. He said, phone me in nine years and I'll give you a deal. <laughs> you still have it? Yeah, yeah, of course. How well, if at all, do you remember getting into a go-kart for the first time on vacation in Ibiza? I remember it like it was yesterday. You do? Yeah. What do you um, remember? I mean, when we got to Ibiza, um, we rented two, uh, my, my, my stepmom had a, we rented two scooters, so we were going around the and city. And how old are you then? Uh, must have been four or five. Wow. And um, I remember sitting in the middle of the seat, you know, in between my dad's legs while we were riding around on this scooter, this moped. And then we found this little track and uh, just had three corners. And then my dad put me in the go-kart. And I remember driving and straight away, you know, on this five laps, whatever that, or whatever laps I did, I, I, was, I picked up this braking technique. And it happened that that braking technique I used my whole my whole karting career, and um, so you know I was at home already in that. And then I didn't get to drive a go kart until I was um, seven. After that, a couple of years later, and um, yeah, who would have thought that now I'll be driving for one? <laughs> what did you most enjoy about those Sunday morning remote control race car experiences? Mm. I love that it was different. I love I love car. I love cars, toy cars, whatever it may be. Um, it was something that I was good at. You know, I struggled at school. I struggled at everything else, and it was one thing that my dad I could do and kind of not show off, but like kind of, hey, dad, look what I can do. You know, whichever kid wants to see your dad smile and be proud of you for something. That was the one thing that I knew that I can make him proud with. So um, I strive to do it as well as I could in in, in every way possible. Thank you very much, Liz. Cheers. Appreciate it. Thanks for listening to the In-Depth with Graham Bensinger podcast. You can also find us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter at Graham Bensinger. And visit GrahamBensinger.com for TV times in your area. Also, don't forget to check out our YouTube channel at YouTube.com slash Graham Bensinger for hours of extra content. If you enjoyed this episode, please give us a rating and review on iTunes or wherever else you listen. This has been the In-Depth with Graham Bensinger podcast.